The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's what Martin Lloyd Jones did. The English preacher didn't say it out loud, he just said it in his mind. Every time he got up to preach, I'm told, he would walk up to the pulpit and he would say in his mind, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And uh, as we come to this morning's message, uh, as Kevin has told us, we are concentrating our efforts on understanding more of God's Spirit who lives within each Christian, each believer, and uh, the incredible gift and privilege it is to know him and walk with him. And um, let me just ask for God's presence as we begin this message. For Father, so often um, preaching is just one beggar telling a bunch of other beggars where to find bread. Lord, and I feel, especially this morning, uh, my frailty in this and uh, how unworthy. I am to address some of the subjects that we're going to see addressed this morning. And, and so, Lord, I pray that you would help me as the messenger to incarnate the word when it's needed, but then get out of the way as well so that your Holy Spirit can do his work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to begin by saying that this sermon series on Galatians has been life-transforming for me more than most sermon series that I have preached through in the last 10 years here. Um, Perhaps it's because of my upbringing, my background, where I'm at. Um, But in the past few months, I can say uh, I have been immersed in and uh, somewhat obsessed with this whole theme of the Galatians series of freedom, of what it means to be a Christian, and the freedom in Christ that he purchased for us, but that we often have not stepped into and walked in. And uh, I, <clears throat> I was at a speech pathologist this past week, and um, I have trouble with my voice, and I, it's my main instrument, of course, so I need to keep it in good, good shape. And uh, at one point, the speech pathologist said to me, and she had a microphone up to me and a computer screen with all the waves of my voice, and she said, just just talk for a couple minutes about whatever you want. And then she said, go. And I wasn't ready, so I said, whoa, just, you know, and then she said, no, just just talk whatever you want, go. And so I started talking about Galatians. Pat, Pat said to me later, well, why don't you talk about me and the kids? And... <laughs> or Finley or somebody, you know. But Galatians. And I, and I just started going into how this is a, a liberating message. This is what, what people need to hear today, that, that Christianity, the, the religion that Christ initiated with his blood on the cross and with his resurrection is, is about freedom. It's about not being legalistic. And, and it's, it's, you know, so I just went on and I noticed that at one point I just looked over at her and she just was listening to me and I thought maybe I'd gone past the two minutes she'd given me. 
And then I, she said, oh, you can stop now. So I did. Last weekend, we were in Thunder Bay. And I had the privilege of being at Jonathan's graduation from law school. And uh, while we were there, we went to another church in the city of Thunder Bay. And uh, as I was standing with Pat and Jonathan worshiping the Lord, I noticed over at this side a woman that used to go to the church that I pastored in Thunder Bay in the 1990s but had left during my time as pastor. And she had left over, her and her husband had left because of a blunder on my part as the pastor. And um, really, it had to do with, uh, uh, well, as soon as I saw her, the Holy Spirit seemed to say to me, you need to go and talk to her. And I knew exactly what he meant when he said that. And so, surprisingly, after the service, she came over and talked to Pat and I. And after we were done chatting, I, I uh, said to her, Janice, uh, I need to talk to you alone. And she said, okay. And I said to you, her, when I got alone with her, I said, <clears throat> I need to ask your forgiveness. Sorry. And she said, no, you don't. You did that years ago. And I had, I'd asked her forgiveness years ago. To, to, without going into detail, I, I, ha, I as a pastor had allowed what I would call today some of the legalistic voices of that church to influence my leadership so that I restricted that family from ministry in certain areas of the church. And she was so gracious. You can see that God had worked in her life. They had thrived in another church where, where grace was flowing more than legalism in that area of ministry. And I thank God for, for what he did. And she was gracious enough to say, you know, you meant well, and God used you at that time to call to attention some things we needed to look at. I'm paraphrasing, but she basically said that. So I want you to know that God never stops growing us in grace. 2 Peter 1, or sorry, 3.18, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we grow in knowledge but not in grace, we get big heads. Big-headed Christians are the worst advertising for Christ. If we grow in heart but not in head, we, we get this mushy, mushy liberal Christian faith that really has nothing to offer redemptively to this world. Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have entitled this series on Galatians, Freedom, the True Nature of Religion, and in summary, Paul has been teaching us the importance of freedom in Christ. Freedom. Don't lose it, he says, and don't abuse it. Don't lose freedom with legalism, and don't abuse freedom with license. You can fall off either side of this fence, Christian. Be careful not to fall off either side. And last week, Pastor Kevin Schuler taught us from chapter 5, 13, and 15, he said, that we were called to freedom, that we should be committed to freedom, which means that we are freed from sin. We are not freed to sin. And he said that the 
the hallmark of the Christian and the freedom is this love for others, a sign that we are experiencing freedom in Christ and we can give that grace to others around us. Around chapter 5, Paul, like he is prone to do at the second half of his letters, leaves the teaching and the doctrine aside and begins to go into the application. And so you'll see in the scripture that we're looking at today that he is heavy on application. Let's take a look at chapter 5 of Galatians. We're going to begin in verse 16, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. And if you have a Bible and want to turn to that, and if you're able to stand, why don't you stand now as I read God's Word. Chapter 5 of Galatians and verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. God bless his word. You may be seated. You'll notice in the insert in your bulletin that I have two main points with an introduction and a conclusion, which adds up to four points. And um, so let's take a look at them really quickly. In introduction, first of all, in, in this passage, very clearly, Paul is addressing the conflict that occurs within each one of us between the flesh and the spirit. And in verse 16, he talks about this battle of overcoming sin. And if you became a Christian or if you become a Christian thinking that somehow your faith will insulate you from the spiritual warfare, the battle that's going on, you will be sadly disillusioned. And, uh, and often that is the, the way that some people come into faith with a wrong understanding. In fact, the real reality of it is that when you come into faith in Jesus Christ, a big bullseye is on the back of you, and the devil's got his, his arrow ready to aim at you. You become more of a target of Satan. And in fact, I don't know what your experience has been, but my experience has been that when you become a Christian as well, some of those sins that laid dormant all of a sudden come to life. In other words, sin can become more attractive for the Christian than for the unbeliever. Hopefully, you will see why as we continue on. I think that this is exactly what happens with some who have embraced a prosperity gospel or a health and wealth gospel. They have been sold a false bill of goods. They come into faith. And then, because God uses illness or poverty or things that are struggles in those areas to sharpen our faith and to test and grow us in faith, because God uses it, not just the devil using it, God uses it to strengthen us, and so we're not ready 
for what happens. And then we, we see people that have embraced that kind of theology having to either become disillusioned with God, lie to themselves, or do some theological gymnastics that sp- explain it away. It's just because they started on the wrong, on the wrong platform. But the conflict in verses 16 to 18 is between the flesh and the spirit. And you, believers, and I are the battlefield. The war that's going on is inside us between the flesh and the spirit. But you're not just the battlefield. You're a key player in the battle. You're also one of the foot soldiers in the battle. You have a very important influence in whether which side loses and which side wins. You have the capacity with this battle raging inside of you to feed the resources and reinforcements over to the flesh or feed the reinforcements and, and, and soldiers to, to, the, to the spirit. And you can decide which one you choose. Chief Sitting Bull of the Dakotas in the 19th century is credited with that saying that I'm sure you've heard, that inside of me there are two dogs. One is mean and evil, and the other is good, and they fight each other all the time. When asked which one wins, I answer, he said, the one I feed the most. Right? Now let's just take that as an illustration for a moment. Dog fighting in Canada became illegal in 1892, believe it or not, long time ago. It became an illegal sport. It still happens around the globe in different pockets where two people will take a dog and and they'll fight either to the death or an injury where one dog wins and gets some money for the owner and so on. Now, I'm not advocating this at all. Please, here's my my, um, waiver or my disclaimer. I'm just using this as an illustration. Imagine for a moment that you are an owner of two dogs and you're part of this sport. You have the opportunity in that battle, in that ring, where a whole bunch of people are coming and they're betting on a dog, you have the opportunity behind the scenes to strengthen the one dog and weaken the other dog, don't you? You own both dogs. You're in charge of this battle. You're going to actually determine the outcome. You seen Gladiator? How does the last battle end? Someone was weakened. And so in this battle, in this dog fight, you could, you could give the, the dog you want to win the best food, the best exercise. You can sharpen his claws and his teeth. You can have him ready to go. This other dog gets neglected. He just, he doesn't get as good a food. He doesn't get the exercise. He's, he's just, and you can determine that when the day of the battle comes, that fight comes, guess who's going to win? Now, our little golden retriever, Charlie, is not a fighter at all. He's a lover. And so, the point I'm making is simply this that you and I determine whether we're going to feed the flesh or we're going to feed the Spirit. And the, the Spirit of God in our lives, we can, we can take His lead and we can follow His lead and, and we can feed to the Spirit by the things we do and think about or we can feed to the flesh. It has to do with our thoughts, our motives, our attitudes, and our actions. And if we feed the Spirit's inclination with pure and wholesome and and good thoughts and motives and attitudes and actions, the Spirit will lead us into victory. Perhaps already today, just by me mentioning that, you are aware of the fact that you have been feeding the flesh and starving the Spirit. If that is an honest evaluation of your own spiritual life this moment, 
please don't just bury that. Bring that to God. Say, God, I've, I've not been feeding the Spirit. I've been feeding the flesh and starving the Spirit because God has so much to say to you about how the fact is this is not your battle. This is the Spirit's battle, but you need to follow him into battle. Even, even as the Israelites followed Joshua into battle, we follow Jesus into battle, and the victory can be ours. And so let's take a look at the Scripture now, and I'm going to unpack it a word at a time and end with some application. Let's begin in verse 16. and where the, the word is clearly walk. Walk by the Spirit. And the word walk is peripateo, which means walk around. It, it can be translated live. Walk around. Just live out your life by the Spirit. And the Spirit here is, in your Bible, probably capitalized, right? Is it a capital S? And, and you know, in the Scripture that I read, Spirit is mentioned seven times. In the Greek text of the Bible, Spirit, pneuma, is mentioned seven times. But guess what? In the English Bible that you're sitting with, you'll see the S capitalized, but in the Greek text, it is not capitalized. Why is that? Well, it's because the translators of every version of the Bible have to, at some point, make an interpretive, interpretive um, choice. And they believe that in this text, it's very clear that the author, Paul, is intending that we understand that the Spirit being talked of here is the Holy Spirit of God, not a human spirit, because you and I have a human spirit. And you can take a look at, sometimes they will leave the S in smaller case, and, and it's not sure whether it's the Holy Spirit or a human spirit being spoken of. You can look at James chapter 4, verse 5 as an example. We're not going to look at it right now, but it's an example where the, the S is small in most translations because the, the translators are not sure whether he's talking about the Holy Spirit or human spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is talked about here. It is God, His Spirit, that we are to walk in. He walk by the Spirit. The word flesh in this passage, sarks, also found several times, is not, let me repeat, not referring to your sinful nature. Okay? Now, going back to 1973, which some of you can remember, the, the, the Bible came out called the New International Version. And it took the word, Greek word sarks, and it translated in all of the New Testament, wherever sarks was, it, it translated sinful nature. And so we had a whole group of people being weaned on a new translation of the Bible that saw that we as Christians have a sinful nature. I love it. There's an article that was written uh, when this was starting to be uncovered and, and criticized. Somebody wrote an article that said, do NIV readers have a sinful nature? <laughs> the fact is that, thankfully, the NIV corrected it in their 2011 edition of the New International Version, and you will find it now translates sarks with flesh, which is exact direct translation instead of sinful nature. What is the truth of Scripture? The truth of Scripture, my friends, brothers and sisters, is that the Christian does not have a sinful nature. That has been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Well, what nature lives in me then? What's well, Christ's nature? 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. 
The old is gone, the new has come. Okay? In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, clearest scripture, you, Christian, have been made partakers of what? Of the divine nature. So you are not spiritual schizophrenics with two natures. You have the flesh principle at work in you, but you have one nature. You were born again, born of God. When anyone is born of God, the old is crucified with Christ. The new is raised up with Jesus Christ. You are a new person in him. And the Holy Spirit is the DNA of God proving that you are a child of God. And he is the deposit God gave you on this earth, guaranteeing what is to come, your inheritance. And so the confusion around this really bothers me because it leads people to wrong thinking. If we go back to the Chief Sitting Bull quote, who are the two dogs that are fighting within me, within you? When the Christian, the two dogs are not two opposing natures at war with each other. That is dualism. It's not Christianity. Okay? Our new nature in Jesus Christ is firmly who we are. Children of God. And that other thing called the flesh that is warring against the spirit and the nature of God in our lives is that spiritual principle of, of the flesh. I like the way Timothy Keller says it. The flesh refers to the sin-desiring aspect of our whole being as opposed to the God-desiring aspect. Some of you might reference the Gateway Bible Gateway website in, in their website, they say, in contexts like this, Galatians 5, the Greek word for sarks or, or flesh refers to the sinful state. The sinful state of human beings often presented as a power that is in opposition to the spirit. And so we have, we have one nature. If you're born of God, if you're a Christian, you have one nature. And this other enemy, the flesh, is always attacking that nature, always seeking to bring you down, and as long as you live life in this body, until this body is laid to rest in the grave, you will have a war going on in you, the flesh against the spirit. But you are fundamentally not a sinner saved by grace. You are a child of God that sometimes sins. And that's a big difference. The other thing I want to share in this word study is the word gratify. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. The word means to bring to an end or to fulfill or to complete. So the one way of getting rid of your lusts and desires is to give in to them. Isn't that a great way? You want to get rid of your desires and lusts? Just give in. And that's what the word means. It means don't do it that way, Paul says. There's another way of getting rid of your lusts and desires. Don't just give in to them and then, oh, now it's gone. I'm not tempted anymore because I gave in. Paul's saying, don't do that. The desires word here is very interesting. It's the word epithumia, which is really two words. Epithumia. Epi means over, over. And thumia is desire. Do you know what your epithumias are? They are your over-desires. Over-desires. What does that mean? Well, I think it means for most of us, and 
I think all of us, is that our main problem is not that we desire to do bad things. We don't get up in the morning and say, I'm going to do something real bad today. Okay? That's not the general way that we live our lives. Rather, we have the, the desires here is the over-desiring of good things. And think about that's where That's where the, the works of the flesh lead us into. That's where sin leads us into. It's not the bad things that you desire. It's the over-desiring of good things. So, desiring something in a wrong way or the wrong degree or the wrong place. When a good thing becomes our God, it becomes an over-desire. The Bible has another word for it. It's called an idol. It's all about your heart. And you can over-desire anything. You can over-desire coffee. You can over-desire sex. You can over-desire alcohol. You can over-desire play and work and food and sleep and toys. You can over-desire all the good things that God gave you for its right place, its rightful place. Enjoy it. God says, I made it for you. Have fun. But then when you put that and over-desire, you begin, it begins to lead you into sin. So that's, that's what Paul is teaching here in verses 16 and 17. And then just to end up this part, he says, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What does Paul mean there? Well, I think that Paul's saying here is that actually the new person with a new nature in Jesus Christ actually wants to please God. That's the new covenant. God writes his law in our hearts. He gives us a new spirit, gives us a new nature. I think that in the inner person of every believer in Jesus Christ, there is a desire to live to please God. When you were born of God, God gave you a new wanter. The old wanter was crucified with the old person, the old flesh, the old uh, nature, and God gave you a new wanter, and the new wanter is, I want to please God, but I can't. So what is Paul doing here? The end of verse 17, he is parallel texting exactly what he has written in Romans chapter 7. You know that passage, don't you? Romans chapter 7 is that conflict passage where Paul says, as a Christian writing, he says, I have this weird thing happening to me. In, in my inner man, I love God's law, and I want to please God. I want to live a good life, but I see another law at work in the members of my body. And, and, and it's war. It's war going on in me. In my inner man, I, I love God. I want to obey God, but on the outer stuff in my body, I can't do it. Wretched man that I am, he says at the end of chapter 7 in Romans. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, free me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And then he goes into chapter 8, and what does he say? Because what happened? How do we overcome this sin? How do we win the victory in this battle? He says, the law, the law of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, big S, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has delivered me, freed me from the law of sin and death. That's powerful. Chapter 8, verse 2 of Romans. It's like, you know, how, how is it? We got off a plane last week, and there's Alex right in the tarmac saying hi. That's, WestJet really knows how to make you feel welcome. And, and how is it that a plane that weighs tons of metal and plastic and human bodies, how does that thing get off the ground? I mean, gravity is always pushing that thing down, right? 
Well, the only way that it can get off the ground is because there's other laws, right, at work. And the law of lift, the law of aerodynamics, and the law of thrust from jet engines can actually overcome the law of gravity. So this huge plane can get, get off the ground and fly. That's what Paul's saying for you and I. He's saying if you, if you and I want to fight gravity, we can all day long. If we want to fight the flesh with the flesh, you can do that. But if you will just learn to live and walk by the Spirit of God, the law of the life of life in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus can set you free, give you lift, overcome sins that you think this is as good as it gets. I'll never become victorious in this area of my life, you say. You've already condemned yourself. God says, no, you haven't even given me a chance. And so in Galatians 5, Paul is saying a new heart, a new nature, a new power can be yours, a new wanter. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You know, we get it wrong, don't we? The natural human bent is not to walk by the Spirit so that we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. The natural bent is to try to not sin, to try to not gratify the desires of the flesh. And we think that if we don't sin, oh, I must be walking in the Spirit. It's not that way. You can't do it that way. You have to focus on walking in the Spirit, and then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. My favorite hymns, one of my favorite hymns is Martin Luther's hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. I'm getting it mixed up. Yeah. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. You and I don't match the the devil. We don't match the power of sin or darkness on earth is not his equal. And then it goes on in the second verse, Martin Luther says, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, that means the place where we find our rest. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. You can't win this battle, folks. He must win the battle. You walk in the victory and the freedom from sin that Jesus Christ has purchased you and made available to you by his Holy Spirit, or you don't walk in victory at all. Punto. That's what God's Word is teaching us. Jesus wins the battle with the flesh, by his spirit. We need to get this, folks. There's so much joy when we do. There's so much joy. Let's move on to talk about the works of the flesh. In in verse 19, Paul begins to make a list of the works of the flesh. He says that the works of the flesh are obvious or evident. The word is to shine. When something shines, it's obvious. He says, sins in the flesh are pretty obvious, usually. This is not an exhaustive list. 
It's interesting that every time there's a list of sins in the Bible in the New Testament, sexual sins is at the head of the list. And um, many people have divided this 15-word dictionary of the sins of the flesh into four categories, and so we're going to take a look at four categories really quickly, but I'm going to land on the first one a little longer this morning. The four categories are sexual desire sins, religious sins, relational sins, and substance abuse sins. So let's begin with the sexual desire sins. There's three words you'll notice in, in uh, verse 19, three words that Paul uses to describe sexual sin. He uses sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. The sexual immorality is one word in the Greek text. It's porneia, where we get our word pornography. Porneia refers to sexual intercourse outside of marriage. You can, you can just take that and draw boundaries around it, and anything outside of that you can call the sexual sin, the fleshly sin or works of the flesh of porneia. So that means that if, if it's not in marriage that orgasm and sexual expression is fulfilled, it is outside of that, and it is called porneia. It is one of the works of the flesh. It could be that you are experiencing porneia with another person, or it could be that you're doing it and experiencing it alone with the internet or with a fantasy, but anything outside of this marriage covenant that God has gifted sex for is called porneia. That's the first word. The second word is impurity, and it is a word that means unnatural sexual practices and relationships. It's unnatural sexual practices and relationships. Now, I know we don't talk about this much in the church, and one of the reasons why I believe so firmly in expository preaching, where you take a text of the Bible and you just work through a book at a time, like we do, is because I'm not going to ride a hobby horse as a pastor and always be talking on the same themes. And also, the Word of God is going to bring us, eventually, into the whole counsel of God. We're going to address everything that God says is important because He gave us a book describing what's important. So when I come up to a text and, and Paul, in the list of these sins, uses three words at the head of every list that ever is in the New Testament on sins to describe sexual sin, I can't just sort of say, well, let's just kind of gloss over that. And so we don't talk about it enough in the church. I think that we are intimidated by the political correctness that is in our culture, in the world around gender and sexuality issues. I think we are very intimidated as Christians in the workplace, at schools. But when it comes up and it's in the Bible and it's right in our face, and I, I, I felt convicted this morning as I was going over my sermon, I just cannot sort of put this aside and just sort of refer to it in general terms. We must be clear as Christians about the truth that counters the popular narrative found in the world. And so when this word, akatharsia in Greek, the impurity, and I've looked at several sources that say this is referring to unnatural sexual practices and relationships. 
You can go a lot of places with that. You can go to bestiality. You can go a lot of places with that that are unnatural. Where did God, why did God design sex and give it to Adam and Eve, give it to the first man and woman, give it to every married partner, couple, man and woman? And the thing about this is I feel as though every time I'm I'm compelled, when the Bible talks about something, we should talk about it. And when when we raise this, I'm always compelled to to say, listen, folks, don't get this wrong. Don't don't start bearing down on legalism again. If 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 there's anybody sitting here this morning that has had or has a natural attraction to the same sex, A same-sex attraction in and of itself is not sin. Any more than me coming into your house and seeing a wonderful family heirloom and wanting to steal it is a sin. I haven't stole it. I just thought, ooh, I'd like to have that in my house. Any more than going out to a party and having one drink and then saying, oh, I really want to get drunk tonight. You haven't sinned yet. Just because you want to maybe doesn't say you've sinned, right? A same-sex attraction is not sin. And yet, the narrative that the world gives people with same-sex attraction is, hey, this is the way God made you. you got to fulfill yourself. Don't be hypocritical. That's who you are. That's hogwash. That's baloney. They don't apply that to other areas of their lives. You know, we we got to be true to what God's Word is teaching us. I've had experiences in two different situations where I've been asked to counsel or give pastoral care to people who have had gender identity issues. And I deeply feel their pain. And I walked in the trenches with them, did one of the funerals for one of them. And I understand It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. We don't want the church to be this place of condemnation. But neither do we want to ignore warning scriptures such as this is, where Paul literally says, he says, I warn you as I have warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the word do here is this word that describes habitual practice. This is not the word describing sort of, hey, hey, I fell into sin once and and I've repented, I've confessed, I'm walking in the light with others. I, I know that this is not what God's called me to. I know I'm a child of God. That is not me. This is talking about habitual practice. Those who do these things, they plant their flag. They say, this is the life I choose Get out of my life, God. Those who do such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. How can we we not speak about something so much, so radical, so so much of a warning? How can we not speak about this in the church? You know, I'm I'm, I'm saying let's, let's be careful how we speak of it, and let's be loving in all ways how we speak and to whom we speak. But friends, we have to know the truth. And we have to announce the truth. The third word in this list of three words is debauchery. 
And this, this refers to uncontrolled sexuality. This refers to the open and reckless expression of sex. Now, you know from the three descriptions I've just given you of these three words, there's a progression here, isn't there? It starts with porneia, and it goes into this unnatural expression, and then it goes to this abandonment of reckless sex. And there's this progression of sin. And they grow in severity. They grieve the Holy Spirit. It dishonors the image of God. It displays graphic self-centeredness. I know that there's shame around sexual sin. There's such shame around sexual sin. And uh, it can be an over-desire that locks someone up into the privacy of their own shame and isolation, and they don't walk in the light with anybody else. They don't share it with anybody else. And um, it's because of this that the four pastors of our church have invited Steve Morris to walk with us in a study that we've been doing for the last few months. And so the five of us men have been studying a study by the, called the Conqueror Series, The Battle Plan for Purity. It's one of the best courses I've ever seen of how to address sexual purity for men. And uh, it's, it's incredibly practical, and it's, it's well put together. And we're going through it because we want to make it available this September coming up to any man in our church who feels that they need to have, have assistance in overcoming sexual sin. And what I like about the teaching of the author is because it acknowledges that it's possible for a Christian to love Jesus Christ with all his heart and still be in enslavement to sin. Do you think that that sounds contradictory? That, that a person could love Jesus Christ with all their heart, be born of God, and yet be drawn to sin. And no, it's not contradictory. That's what Paul is teaching here. Paul is teaching in Galatians, Jesus Christ has set you free. Don't be given over to a yoke of slavery again. But guess what? Just because Jesus Christ secured your freedom, just because the Holy Spirit applied your freedom, doesn't mean that you're walking in the Spirit and that you've downloaded the grace that's yours and are, are walking in that kind of freedom that's yours. It doesn't mean the same. You need to learn how to do that. And so next week on Sunday morning, I know it's Father's Day, but the text in chapter 6 lends well to this as well. We're going to show a video next week on, on this curriculum that we're talking about by Dr. Ted Roberts and his wife Diane from Pure Desire Ministries. And when you see that next week, you can get an idea of whether it might be something for you or for someone that you know. Well, the next words that we have, and we need to conclude soon, but... The word religion, Paul mentions two words, idolatry and sorcery. Under relationships, there's eight words. Paul mentions enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. And then finally, under substance abuse, Paul mentions two words, drunkenness, the over-desire for alcohol or some drug. And then secondly, the one that confuses many people is orgies. And this does not refer to a sexual orgy. This refers to a drunkenness orgy. This refers to the kind of abandoned pleasure-seeking, I don't care, I'm going to medicate, i got to escape this world with a drug, with alcohol, or something else. And this is what this word orgy in this word means. And so instead of medicating our problems, God says meditate on his solutions. 
And Paul says things like these. You know, I've warned you. You're not going to hear the kingdom of God if you free fall into these things. Unrehearsed, unabandoned. I'm going to mention just one more thing as we go go ahead, and that's that uh, all summer long, we're going to be talking about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to know, we did not set aside the summer to talk about the 15 works of the flesh. (laughs) Wouldn't that be an awful series? I mean, okay, we're going to talk about envy this morning, or we're going to talk about debauchery. I mean, no, again, live by the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we're going to focus on the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And for nine Sundays this summer, we're going to unpack love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and, and we're going to understand more. So I'm not going to say anything about verses 22 and 23 today, but I am going to conclude by saying that Paul's point here is saying keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. And this idea of walking is this idea of, of keeping in line with God's Spirit. Walk it out. Recognize that you belong to Him. Verse 26, let us not become conceited and provoking one another and envying one another. He says, don't don't get conceited. The word is actually, don't become empty, empty boasting, self-deluded conceit driven by personal delusions of grandeur, boasting when there's nothing to boast about. I mean, this is the way sometimes we can become. Think, oh, I got no problems. Don't become conceited like that. Just like Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden and they felt shame, what did they do? They hid from God. The very one that they should have run to, they hid from. And that's what sin causes us to do too, if we don't understand who God is. If he's only a God to run from, then we, we don't understand the Bible. We don't understand the message of Jesus. But friends, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And when you wrestle with sin, don't run from God, run to God. Run to the Lord Jesus Christ who took upon himself on that cross your sins, the sins of tomorrow. He took them upon himself. He was raised from the dead. He, he left your sin in the grave. You need to walk in the freedom that is yours. He wants you to experience that freedom on this earth. He doesn't want you to just get to heaven having lived terribly on this earth. He wants you to experience the freedom that is yours. And so if you'll notice in the reflection questions, I I probe you and I ask you, as you take this message home, I would ask you to think about when you were last vulnerable to somebody about a sin, a work of the flesh, that you wrestle with. When was the last time you opened up and said, I need help in this area. I need prayer in this area. One other trusted Christian can be such a gift from God for you. And then secondly, finally, what what positive things could you implement into your life, into your daily routine that would starve one dog and feed the other? Starve that dog of the flesh and feed the Holy Spirit in your life. Would you stand with me as we conclude? And let's pray.
Heavenly Father, our God, we, I just feel like we have been on holy ground this morning, and I have asked you to, to just free my tongue to say what I needed to say today, and I ask you, Holy Spirit, to come in and, and, and to do in the hearts of people today what you need to do. We believe in the Holy Spirit, your power to transform inwardly and to bring us into the freedom that Jesus Christ has purchased. Lord, may everyone here today and those that listen elsewhere, Lord, may, may we experience more of you in this way. Have your way in us, and thank you, gentle Spirit of God, that you do not barge into our lives, but that you, in, you wait to be invited. I pray today there will be many invitations for you to enter into those areas that, Jesus, you can come in and you can, you can wash us clean. Lord, I pray there'll be many people will open their relationships up to one other person where they can receive a vulnerable time, but, but a counseling time, a, a prayerful time that they would give the gift of second. Lord, I pray your blessing on this fellowship of believers and that we would not be a church that ignores the things that are going on around us, that when your word speaks, Lord, we would be bold to speak and gentle to apply. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. People of God, may the Lord bless you. May the grace of God be with you. The love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit go in his peace.